Hello and welcome to the Eastern Front. My name is Delbo Rohanj and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. I'm joined by my friend. I'm Giselle Donnelly. I'm also at AEI. Our friend Yulia Zhuzha will be joining us later during the show as uh, she is very much out of character running behind the schedule a little bit. Uh, we have the great privilege of welcoming Mantas Adominas, the Vice Minister of Foreign Affairs of the Republic of Lithuania, to the podcast. On the podcast, we talk about the many challenges to European peace and security that have erupted along the line, running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea, and about why those matter to the United States. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider reviewing and rating the show uh, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you. Uh, Vice Minister, um, we have to start on the topic of the day, obviously, which is the upcoming Vilnius Summit. So so I'm recording this podcast from Bratislava, where I listened to uh, the speech by the French President uh, Emmanuel Macron yesterday, in which he said that he was in favor of giving Ukraine clear and tangible security guarantees going forward. He mentioned a path towards NATO membership. At the same time, he made the caveat that he didn't think that there was a consensus within the alliance in favor of a clear path towards NATO membership for Ukraine. Lithuania obviously is not only hosting the summit, but it's also been at the forefront of efforts to, to make the case for Ukraine's future NATO membership and, and for sort of solidifying this sort of consensus within within the alliance. So so what are your expectations for the for the summit? What would you consider a success coming out of out of the Vilnius summit? Thank you. Thank you very much, Dalibor, and it's good to be on the, your podcast. And uh, it's a very pertinent question. It was not just Globsec. Today I'm following uh, Oslo Ministerial uh, uh, which is unfolding as, as, as we speak. Um, and uh, in fact, uh, I think that uh, there is a sort of change of perspectives and there is a change of expectations. And I, in, in, in that uh, context, um, for us, the success of the summit is uh, in three principal dimensions. And one of them is uh, Ukraine's uh, NATO prospects. Secondly, it's uh, defense of the eastern flank. And third is uh, defense spending. Obviously, uh, the accession of Sweden uh, to NATO during the Vilnius summit would be absolutely sort of wonderful. Uh, but these three dimensions is what, what for us defines a successful summit. And to, to, to go to the first one, and probably the most controversial is Ukraine's prospects. Well, obviously, we are realize that uh, membership is not going to be offered, sort of, you know, and that even the timing may be, uh, may be sort of uh, difficult. But we need a clear perspective and then a step forward from Bucharest uh, language. We need to give a very clear perspective. We have to give algorithm, having fulfilled which um, uh, Ukraine would become a member of NATO. Um, and uh, this goes beyond security guarantees because security guarantees are very important, but basically security guarantees mean only one thing. It's the perpetuation of the existing level of uh, support uh, military, economic, political to Ukraine's uh, efforts to defend itself against Russia's uh, aggression. Um, security guarantees do not uh, mean um, anything in the shape of Article 5. It does not mean actual sort of involvement of the alliance, and it shouldn't. But uh, we have to be very clear what, what they contain. They contain um, simply extension into the future and long-term commitment to help Ukraine militarily, politically, economically. We need to go beyond that. We need to give a very clear political perspective or, and a sign of progress. And this is a very important message, both to Ukrainians who are doing their utmost to defend uh, 
us, the Eastern uh, NATO countries, uh, from uh, potential Russian aggression uh, to defend uh, uh, NATO and, and NATO security. Um, insofar as while uh, Russia is, is involved in that war, it, it cannot attack in other directions. But also, um, this would be a very important message to send to Russia, because if there is no political progress on, on Ukraine's NATO membership, that sends a signal to Russia that actually their war is succeeding. They are managing to stop Ukraine's uh, uh, in integration in NATO. And that will only encourage their further sort of aggressiveness. And uh, in fact, the other, you know, uh, vice versa, if we send a very clear message, that would be de-escalation, not escalation. When Russia encounters very clear boundaries, it tends to uh, uh, step down. Um, I wonder if we could talk about the uh, second item on your uh, list of measures of success. It's, it's something that we've talked about a lot on the program, but at least in the American conversation, doesn't get quite the attention uh, probably that it does uh, in Lithuania or Eastern Europe. And there are certainly questions to be asked or to be addressed on the part of the alliance um, as a whole as to what we imagine future security arrangements uh, across Eastern Europe, across NATO's Eastern Front uh, to be like. Uh, I'd be really interested in your views of what the you know the post-victory, let's, let's hope for the best, a post-Ukraine NATO posture or NATO arrangement looks like, um, uh, again, particularly with the, the concentration on uh, uh, containing and deterring Russian aggression. Thank you very much. That's, that's an extremely important question. But before we go to post-Ukraine uh, security um, architecture in, in, uh, in, in Europe, we have to think about uh, security architecture during Ukraine. And, you know, we've been over a year into this war. And um, um, while the, there's been some deployment of uh, um, uh, materiel and, and, uh, and uh, troops in, in, in Poland, the, the uh, landscape across the eastern flank is, is very uneven. It can go from countries like Bulgaria, which, okay, it doesn't border on Ukraine, but it's, it's on the Black Sea. So, you know, uh, Russian Navy is, is just off their sort of coast. Um, then Romania. Uh, than the Baltic countries. And there, I must say that, you know, a year uh, and a couple of months into the war, uh, the, the security posture hasn't changed since, since, uh, since the time before the 24th of February 2022. So, um, you know, and then given, for example, the Baltic countries are the only linked to the rest of NATO through not fully 100 kilometer um, Suwalki gap. It's, uh, you know, between the heavily militarized Kaliningrad and Belarus, which is increasingly incorporated into the Russian sort of military structures. It was from Belarus that, you know, the attack on Kiev was launched in, the, in, in February and March last year. Um, and recently, the agreement was signed between Belarus and Russia to deploy uh, nuclear uh, weapons in, 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 in Belarus under Russian command. So, you know, um, the, the Baltic countries uh, have not received any, any bolstering of NATO presence. They still rely on this old uh, concept, which I think became obsolete um, with this war of uh, kind of tripwire defense, you know, token presence of NATO troops and the concept of uh, recovery of territory if it's taken by Russia. But, you know, after Bucha, Borodanka, all, all, all this uh, uh, mass uh, massacres of, of civilian populations, um, you know, it's not a viable concept anymore. So we have to move to uh, deterrence by denial and actually to have a uh, NATO forces in place, which are capable of uh, um, fighting back, actually, and, and not allowing the famous 
inches of NATO territory to, to, to be captured by Russians. So this is something that we, we very much sort of, you know, argue for, that it becomes a part of uh, the summit language, part of the summit uh, documents, and uh, that there is a real commitment to deploy actual troops, not just the kind of notional brigades uh, which uh, sit somewhere in, in the home countries and kind of are meant to be deployed if trouble arises. You know, we, you know when trouble arises, it might be too late, especially given the fact that uh, Kaliningrad boasts sort of, you know, a very significant... Uh, uh, anti-access area denial sort of capability. So, um, so uh, you know, this this might become difficult. And um, so that's that's the second uh, dimension of you know, what we need to do now. And may I just ask a question about that? Um, there was, you know, kind of a drip, drip, drip of rotations of units uh, to the Baltic states. You know, it was very much, as you say, a half measure. I'm, I've just been wondering whether countries have been able to keep up the commitments that they did make, you know, a number of years ago when this step w- was taken, you know, given the stress that the particularly Western European militaries have been under, I, I've, I've just, this is just a factual question. Have you continued to receive the, the you know, the unit, the rotational forces? Yes. Uh, after the, the, the uh, commitment to, to keep uh, enhanced forward presence uh, was made in the in the, the Baltic countries and other countries, I mean, this, this has been maintained. Uh, but that means that in Lithuania, for example, there are two NATO rotational battalions in addition to, to Lithuanian sort of forces. And that's clearly not enough. And this is, this is a, a very, very sort of thin tripwire. Um, so we need to scale up to the brigade level force. And, and that's, that's the sort of the, the bone of contention. For example, brigade in Lithuania, brigade in Latvia, brigade in Estonia, uh, similar sort of size uh, deployments in, 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 uh, in Romania and Bulgaria. Uh, but that's, that's what we have to do during the war, actually, while the war is going on. What's next? I mean, sort of it, it, you know, it very much depends on, on um, the, how this war will end. And um, in fact, uh, we have no other options. It has to end not only with Ukraine's victory, but also with Russia's defeat. Uh, we, you know, it, it, uh, it needs to be uh, not only pushed out from, from uh, Ukraine's territory, but also uh, to be rendered incapable of launching uh, any other sort of military aggressions, whether against NATO countries or against uh, its neighbors in, in other directions like Georgia or Kazakhstan, where it also sort of in, in entertains uh, aggressive thoughts occasionally. So, um, we, you know, for the sake of the stability on the continent, we have to, you know, collectively with the help of Ukrainians achieve that. Um, otherwise, it will be just a breathing space until until this uh, ideologically sort of imperialist regime thinks of a of a new new adventure, new sort of uh, new direction of aggression. And um, before that then happens, uh, sort of we need to actually rethink uh, the, the, the whole sort of uh, um, architecture. And Ukraine's membership in NATO is a essential part of it. Um, the, the sort of uh, to have probably the biggest uh, and uh, certainly most um, battle-hardened uh, army on the European continent in NATO is essential for it to, to, to be sort of um, capable of deterring Russia enough so that it doesn't meditate any, uh, uh, any other sort of uh, uh, aggressive moves. So before we move to topics that go beyond the, uh, the upcoming Vilnius summit, I think we have to sort of tick the last box on your list, which is the question of defense spending. And so there are two dimensions to this question. First, I wonder what your message is to uh, Lithuania's European partners that 16 months into the war still do not spend enough on on, on, on their defense, on NATO's collective defense. Either what sort of suasion or tactics or sort of rhetorical devices you are planning to deploy there. And then secondly, um, a related question is, 
is, is not just the sort of how much question, but, but also the how question. So yesterday, uh, I'm going back to the Macron speech, which was delivered in a very conciliatory tone, but it also included a thinly veiled criticism of Eastern European countries, particularly Poland, that have invested into weapon systems and capabilities uh, that are produced outside of Europe. And, and he basically said that this was sort of the beginning of sort of future troubles because we should be instead investing into European European sort of industrial base, you know, under the rubric of, of Europe's strategic autonomy. So so what would be your response to to sort of Macron's, you know, aching for for, for, for a Europe that is acting supposedly independently of American voters will, as, as he put it. Well, it's an accepted practice not to comment on, on other European leaders' speeches. But um, what uh, sometimes uh, slightly uh, sort of frightens me is that uh, there's a lot of thinking that, you know, the war in Ukraine, uh, Russia's war against Ukraine, is a kind of isolated episode, a blip. You know, when it finishes, we can go back to business as usual. We can sort of, you know, we can forget about uh, sort of commitments to, to increase defense spending. We can sort of... Uh, forget the commitments to uh, upgrade our military and to render its defense capable, and you know it will be back to the business as usual. Well, no, I mean, so there is going to be no going back to, to business as usual, uh, like there was no sort of going back after the Second World War. I mean, we didn't revert into kind of interwar reality. I mean, it was a new reality. So uh, whichever way the war ends, and I, you know, it's going to be a new reality, and uh, we will see at that point that you know those thirty years after the end of the Cold War was a kind of unexpected. Uh, peace dividend, uh, which we sort of, because it lasted a long time, we, we sort of got accustomed to it and we thought this is normality. No, this is not normality. This this is a um, sort of deviation from the normal. We have to go back to, to, to kind of being capable of defending ourselves, to spending more on defense, to investing into our military, because we are going into increasingly uh, unpredictable, aggressive and um, well, sort of um, um, rapacious world, if, if you may, sort of where where sort of uh, authoritarian superpowers will be will be trying to to divide the world in 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 the sort of in, in their vicinity and um, even maybe further afield. So uh, you know we have to be prepared for that, and we have to forget you know the, the kind of this uh, uh, somnolent, uh, uh, peaceful, um, optimistically fatalistic sort of you know uh, normal that was from from uh, nineteen. 91 till till um, 2022. So um, so that's a message, and, and the spending is uh, is is first step in doing that. We have to look actually further. We have to look into the structure of the spending investment, and uh, when people try to sort of kind of uh, contrast and, and and oppose, you know, uh, buying military hardware from from the states uh, or other NATO countries outside Europe and Europe. I mean, it's not either or. It's and and. I mean, so yes, we have to bolster defense. Uh, industry capability in Europe, because we realize we don't have uh, enough uh, um, shells, uh, uh, missiles, uh, tanks to supply to Ukraine. Um, and, uh, you know, but that doesn't exclude, sort of, you know, also buying from the allies. So um, NATO has to, to, you know, as far as it's NATO, we are well integrated. The fact that uh, Poles are, are buying tanks from South Korea is not a reflection that they spurn other tanks. They just want tanks in place before Russians uh, have the idea to move on them. Um, so, uh, so this is, you know, overriding concern, I think. And uh, uh, yes, I'm, I'm all for a defense industry in Europe, but um, we have to have both. Let's um, expand the conversation a bit. Lithuania has, has possibly not by choice, but, but certainly very powerfully recognized uh, that Europe doesn't exist in a global vacuum. I'm talking particularly about 
the fact of growing Chinese power and the, also the, the dangers posed uh, by that. I think it would be a good idea for you to give our listeners a little bit of a summary of that story. And also, uh, you're drawing closer to, to Taiwan, which is very cheering for, for us in America. Uh, but also give us a sense of whether the um, the realities that you see are increasingly shared across Europe and particularly Western Europe. It may be one thing to say, okay, we can't do business with the Russians, uh, you know, for some time uh, under these circumstances. We'll just make up the difference and we'll sell BMWs to the Chinese or something like that in order to keep our standard of living high. Um, but again, just tell us the story of Lithuania's uh, experience over the last you know, 10 years or whatever exactly it's been, why you made the choices that you have made, and how you would recommend those to your European colleagues. Thank you. That's a fundamental question. And um, the, when the present government came um, in, into office in, in early uh, 21, one of the first sort of goals was actually to diversify away from dependence on China. And we had, you know, precedents before that because we had our economy overly dependent on Russia, on Belarus, where it was easy to do business, uh, but, but very sort of, you know, uh, in the long term uh, risky in, in giving uh, these authoritarian regimes leverage over your own economy, over your politics, over society, over energy dependence and things like that. And, uh, uh, having diversified from, from dependence, for example, on, on, on Russian energy resources, Lithuania was the first country to totally cut off all sort of um, energy resources from Russia, we realized the dangers of such dependence. So one of the first goals was to uh, first diversify um, away from, from dependence on, on China um, and, and to expand our footprint in, 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 sort of in, in East Asia, uh, but also support uh, democratic developments and uh, democracies uh, worldwide. So um, the result of that was that we were the first to leave this um, uh, clientelist format uh, of what was called 17 plus 1, a sort of a clustering of uh, Central and Eastern European countries plus China. Uh, that was one of the first sort of uh, things to do. And, and uh, I, I spent some time on, on the phone with then my uh, counterpart in, in, the, in the People's Republic of China saying that, you know, we're not going to participate in this anymore. And the next step was uh, allowing Taiwan to open uh, its office uh, in, in Vilnius under the name of Taiwan. Uh, not in any way sort of, you know, uh, denying our sort of one China policy, but um, uh, maintaining that um, um, Taiwan has a, the rights not to be called euphemistically sort of Taipei. So, uh, and, and that provoked sort of absolutely immense uh, reaction by China. Well, our trade fell by sort of 75% in the end. I mean, sort of, you know, we thought it was going to be even more than that. Um, and uh, but the interesting thing is that the in, during the last year the growth of our trade with other East Asian countries actually was bigger than than what we lost in in trade with China, and so you know we demonstrated very practically okay it was a bit of a crash course in in, in demonstration but we demonstrated that one can diversify away from China one can sort of de-link and and um, from dependence on supply chains on on export markets um, and actually survive as an economy. So um, I think this is a salutary um, lesson, and uh, to people who want to, to listen to us, we're happy to share how, how we did it. Uh, it's, there's been a, a lot of sort of hard work behind this, and a lot of help from, from our friends and allies, um, such as US, uh, uh, Taiwan itself, uh, other uh, like-minded countries, uh, not least EU, which supported us in the uh, World Trade Organization um, case uh, against China, Chinese economic coercion. 
But uh, more importantly, I think it sent the message that what are it, it demonstrated very clearly what can happen if you are overly dependent on China. You know, these these levers they can put, be pulled any time and for different reasons. It, it doesn't have to be Taiwanese representative office. It can be some other sort of uh, uh, aggravation that you know might arise in the eye of uh, of the uh, communist beholder. So um, I think this message kind of. Um, um, Percolated to, 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 to sort of um, policy-making cycles across EU, and when we read um, speeches like um, our Swedish Prime Minister's uh, two days ago, which very cautiously but very sort of um, uh, clearly says that we have to move beyond this naivete and sort of naive optimism vis-à-vis uh, -vis China. When you know, so when you have similar statements coming from other chancelleries and, and presidencies and uh, ministers of foreign affairs in Europe, um, one feels that there is a sort of sea change. There is a sea change, and um, even though you know, sort of with Europe, it's always one step forward to be to backwards. But if I, let me just add a little footnote to this, which is which is that there isn't always. Uh, a perfect overlap between uh, between sort of perceptions and expectations and reality, particularly when it comes to the sort of economic significance of of relations with China. So, so trade is one aspect that you sort of hinted at, but the other one, which was one of the driving forces behind the seventeen plus one format, was the expectation that there was somehow all this Chinese investment just aching to flood Central and Eastern Europe, and partly, I mean, especially in the case of say the Czech Republic. Uh, the sort of move away from China was driven by the fact that that the reality had nothing to do with those expectations. That the Chinese were interested in making you know a few sort of high profile investments, but there was nothing in it for 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 those countries yet. In you know it's not just the sort of Eastern Europe Western Europe divide, but but even in the region you know concretely in sort of Poland that there, there still are you know people in some circles who who still harbor hope for. For Polish investment, I mean, I saw conversations within within the um, ruling law and justice party that were sort of hint, hinting at the possibility that if you know the EU is uh, that, that does not provide the funds that, that under under the sort of rule of law rubric that, that they might turn to to, to to the to the Chinese. I think those those hopes are going to be disappointed, but but it would be interesting to sort of see when Poles themselves who have been outstanding allies in so many ways are going to be sort of disabused of, of whatever sort of leftover illusions they might harbor about China. Right. Well, you will have to have to ask polls about that, but you're absolutely right. I mean, sort of, you know, in terms of delivering on, on in, you know, expected investment, except for two countries which re rendered themselves kind of vassals of, of Beijing uh, in this whole grouping. Um, uh, the, for the rest, you know, one could say about this, the promises of, of China, what People used to say about Brazil that you know it's a country of the future and will always remain so. The need of promise of investment is, is the sort of the thing of the future and will always remain so. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a powerful sort of expectation. And but yes, um, it didn't deliver. And when it does deliver, it, the only sort of you know uh, it's not the case that Europe doesn't deliver on investment. It doesn't deliver on in transparent investment. Uh, on sort of uh, transparent on investment without strings attached. And that that used to be the the, the principal sort of purchasing uh, point of, of that uh, uh, Chinese investment through the Belt and Road Initiative in, in, in the developing countries. Uh, but even they sort of, they're becoming more realistic about what they get. They get quite a lot of sort of uh, uh, invisible strings attached. And um, uh, so, you know, there, there is a growing um, realism. And uh, 
I'm happy that you know, sort of in in, in Europe, we are finally moving beyond this uh, this sort of uh, uh, naive and optimist uh, attitude. Vice Minister, I'm joining late, but I want to continue on this thread, though slightly changing the topic. To me, Chinese investments or the temptation or of an interest in uh, in Chinese investments across Central and Eastern Europe has, you know, over the last few years, also been about. Is there a Western alternative or not? Sure, we would prefer Western technology, American, um, EU, and less strings attached. But if there's no option, and the other or the other option is Russia, countries like Ukraine um, will will accept China um, when when the EU is not an option. And so that makes me turn to EU and Ukraine and ask you: Over the last few months, there's been inching in more in the larger EU capitals on the topic of um, should we have a faster accession, should we talk about um, integration already of Ukraine and Moldova uh, into the European Union. And as we're speaking, the political community summit, the second one initiated by Macron, is taking place in Chisinau, Moldova. And a lot of discussion has been around whether this is uh, an attempt by Paris to create an alternative to EU fast-track membership for Ukraine and Moldova, but particularly Ukraine. So my question to you is... um, What are you hearing? What is Lithuania's position on this? And how do you see um, the path towards EU accession and significant um, significant progress on that within this year for Ukraine and Moldova both? Right. Well, European political community, I think if, if there were some um, you know, uh, designs to make it an alternative to EU membership, uh, they, they may have sort of um, uh, been in place before the Prague summit. Um, I, I think... Um, During the summit and, and immediately afterwards, you know, the, this notion that you know it, it can be a substitute was was pretty much sort of you know uh, pushed uh, um, out of sight. And, and uh, so I, I don't think you know that there's a sort of you know viable track of, of discussion that you know the, the, the EPC European Political Community, which is meeting today in Chisinau, can, can be uh, a way of uh, avoiding the question of what to do with Ukraine with Moldova perhaps with Georgia, uh, in terms of European uh, Union membership. And um, the, now the principal question is what reforms would be needed uh, in order to accommodate, uh, especially a large country like Ukraine, especially given the fact that um, quite a few Western European countries emphasize that uh, integration of, EU, uh, of Ukraine and Moldova into the EU has to proceed uh, step by step with integrating Western Balkan countries, which, well, obviously they're not as, as big and sort of... Um, Massive as, as 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 Ukraine, but but you know they they, they also bring their own sort of um, concerns and 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 their own um, problems which would need to be resolved. So um, so you know this is you know trying to package it together with Western Balkans in a sense tries to to postpone the the the, the time when when Ukraine integration can take place. But um, again, um, quite a lot will depend on, on Ukraine itself, on the results of the uh, of that sort of track record on reforms and on, on these sort of points raised by the Commission last year as a condition to, to moving further. And uh, 
we monitor this. We, we sort of we try to, to to help Ukraine as much as we can with our own um, transformational expertise. You know, sort of, but we by entering EU and actually sort of adopting its uh, rules as as uh, path forward to creating successful um, economy and, and society and state institutions, uh, how it can help. And there is a lot of transformative potential in, in Ukraine. Uh, the, the the fact that you know sort of this this country is. Uh, able to reform itself and at a very rapid pace. Obviously, there are setbacks. Obviously, there are difficulties. Obviously, you know there are there are sort of um, occasional blind spots. But nevertheless, you know the, the overall uh, record is is very impressive, and it's doing so uh, at the speed which would be even unimaginable to a lot of countries in peacetime, and they're doing it under war, under sort of war conditions. So. Um, I think uh, to uh, fail to recognize that um, uh, may be politically impossible. So I'm, I'm very hopeful about uh, about sort of granting, uh, well, starting negotiations uh, or moving towards starting negotiations later this year. Obviously, we'll have to wait for Commission's report in the autumn. But in the in the interim, um, we we have to do everything we can to to help uh, Ukraine to speed along this 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 path of reforms. And uh, I'm confident that uh, you know this will happen uh, and this will happen sooner than than we sometimes think. If I may follow up on that just very um, quickly, you kind of um, pointed to the to the wound here um, that I think we've seen with several statements from Western leaders um, through the last few months, and I'm thinking also about the Munich Security Conference this year where some in Western capitals have been arguing the war should not be an excuse for faster integration, fast-tracked integration. And the debate is changing, just like here in Washington, the debate has been changing about what kind of weapons to give Ukraine, etc. So what is your take um, as we're inching towards the second half of, of this year do you think that, are you confident that this argument is fading um, uh, within the European, within the European Union community, or are we still um, looking at significant obstacles in the context of exactly there, uh, that um, special, um, special circumstances for Ukraine because of the war or not accepting um, special circumstances? Oh, I, I don't think that uh, we, we, you know, um, argue that, you know, a war is in any way sort of an excuse for fast integration. I mean, war and certain sympathy with Ukraine helped to break the deadlock of, of, on, on, on paralysis of political will to move forward. But uh, from the very first uh, sort of moment of granting the candidate status, uh, we, you know, so we argue that it has to be merit-based. And Ukraine's recognized that it has to be merit-based. Uh, so uh, war should not be an excuse, but neither should war be an obstacle. Um, and that we should recognize the fact that the country is doing an impressive uh, transformation during the war. So, um, so I, I think sort of, you know, it can hold itself, you know, its uh, own um, under the same stringent criteria it's being applied to Western Balkans. Um, so if we don't treat war as an obstacle to further integration, then um, I'm pretty confident, you know, it, it will qualify. Throughout this region, just to change the subject a little bit, countries and their populations are being bombarded with Russian propaganda, disinformation operations, Either Russia exploiting every fissure in the social fabric to sort of tear these societies apart. Again, I'm recording this from Slovakia, where Russia has made significant headways and where the public opinion has really shifted in a, in a rather disturbing fashion. Now, Lithuania is a country that has a sizable Russian-speaking minority. And to me, as an outside observer at least, Lithuania seems completely immune 
to to those sorts of Russian efforts? Like, why 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 is that? Like, how how have you immunized your population, including the Russian speaking part, against against Russian disinfo and and and, and hybrid warfare, if you will? Thank you. Um, well, in contradistinction to. Um, other countries in the in the vicinity, uh, other Baltic countries, our Russian minority is, is comparatively small. It's uh, it's only sort of six percent, um, and uh, quite a lot of it comes from the old times when they were the SKPs from from uh, tyrannical Russian regimes from the 16th, 17th century. You know, and then when they are fleeing persecution um, by Moscow despots in in the previous iterations. I think the second element to this is uh, that early on, immediately in the aftermath of of the invasion of Crimea. Crimea, annexation of Crimea and invasion of eastern Ukraine, we, um, we realized the, the, the dangers that uh, Russian propaganda poses. And so we moved uh, um, ahead of other uh, EU countries on uh, limiting its reach, on limiting what they can do in Lithuania. And so, in, in fact, uh, turning uh, off this, this uh, source of uh, indoctrination and uh, disinformation, which uh, still, for example, exists in, in, in uh, quite a few other EU countries, let alone other countries bordering Russia, which are not members of the EU. So um, we have to take care of, our, of the hi- information hygiene, as it were. And, you know, this is a very sort of sensitive issue because... Uh, you know, uh, we have to, uh, there's a tension, obviously, between providing certain standards of public information with uh, sort of maintaining freedom of speech and then freedom of information. Uh, But um, this balance has to be found, you know, in in, in all democratic societies, there has to be balance between sort of uh, freedom and responsibility, um, freedom and security, so freedom of information and uh, sort of security of, of information, security of having access to truthful information, which I think is also a right that people have to, uh, to be able to entertain right to truth and not to be overwhelmed with lies and uh, government-paid um, uh, distortion of reality. I wonder, if, just to conclude, uh, whether we can go back to where we started, meeting uh, the Vilnius summit and the war in Ukraine as it is now. Uh, this week, President Zelensky has basically said, we are ready to go with our long-awaited, long-anticipated counteroffensive. And it could well be the case by the time of the summit in July that uh, he can come to Vilnius not just as a victim, but as a victor. What do you think the upside possibilities could be? Conversely, if things go badly, it could be a a happy occasion. But how how could the summit take a you know, a quantum leap forward in support for Ukraine? And do you think um, a demonstrable success in this counteroffensive would create that kind of momentum? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, uh, we have to realize that from the very first day of war, our sort of uh, expectations have been on a, on a sort of, um, sliding scale. And uh, uh, the reluctance to supply arms in, in the first instance was, was linked to the fact that we thought Ukraine was not going to last for until the beginning of next week. So um, certainly sort of Ukraine's victory on, on the battlefield would be a great boost to its uh, uh, NATO aspirations, to, to, to its um, European aspirations, and uh, um, generally to encouraging us to, to help more, to deliver more, and uh, to be uh, ready to do it uh, uh, in, in a speedier manner. But as, as you say, yes, fortunes of war are uncertain. So we have to prepare, sort of, and, you know, our sort of default position is that we have to push these policies forward uh, regardless of, uh, you know, how this counteroffensive goes, because uh, the cause uh, doesn't cease to be right just because it, it doesn't uh, immediately uh, become victorious. 
uh, you know, we have only one path forward, and that's to defeat Russia on the battlefield, to render it incapable of further aggression, uh, and our sort of security is predicated on that. Peace on European economy is predicated on that. So we have to push forward with these policies, uh, regardless of how Ukraine is fair. And I wish them all the best. I trust in their victory, but we have to be prepared to be allies in the fair and as well as bad weather. Amen to that. Vice Minister, thank you so much for your time. We understand you're running on a very busy schedule. Thank you. From me, Alberaj. Me, Giselle Donnelly, and Yulia Zosa. Thank you for listening to the Eastern Front, a podcast dedicated to security challenges that have erupted along the line running from the Baltic Sea to the Black Sea. You can find additional content, more episodes on our website, ai.org, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoyed this show, please rate and review us. It helps others find the podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to our Eastern Front newsletter, which will bring you a fortnightly dose of news from the Eastern Front. Thank you and goodbye.